Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hello, what's up? Uh, Welcome to another show. A few things to go through before we even get started. If you aren't already a member of the Facebook discussion group, that's where we discuss all of the podcasts. You can ask your questions. I'll often put up questions there on what people you want to see, what you want us to talk about, etc. So if you're enjoying these podcasts, then make sure you join that group. All you've got to do is search on Facebook for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. The other thing is, this podcast is sponsored by Butternut Box. Butternut Box are a really cool dog food company. They're based in the UK. They're healthy. This a natural dog food with the freshest ingredients. Everything is home cooked. It's perfectly portioned and delivered to your door. They're an organization or a company that really want to change pet food for the better. And the people that work there are really cool. The dog food is great for fussy eaters, dogs with sensitive stomachs, and I know our dogs have loved it. And it's one of the few dog foods that has a five-star rating on All About Dog Food. And the great thing is, as someone that listens to this podcast, you can get a 75% off offer on your first order. So to get 75% off, go to buttonupbox.com slash nickbenger. Today, I'm talking to Hannah Brannigan. Hannah is really cool. She's absolutely hilarious. And she's also extremely smart when it comes to training dogs, especially for sports stuff. Hannah has titled dogs in agility, obedience, IPO, confirmation, and rally. And she has released two DVDs on competition obedience, obedience fundamentals and beyond fundamentals. And she's the host of the podcast, Drinking from the Toilet. So... Let's get into it. <laughs> right, cool. Um, yeah, so I think that it would be really cool because a lot of the people like me that do listen to your podcast aren't necessarily going to know much about you. Mm-hmm. And how you even start, why why you decided to start a podcast. So I think that's probably the logical starting place. What made you want to start a podcast for dog training? Well, it's it's kind of two reasons. One, it, it occurred to me just watching how things have played out on social media over the last couple of years, both both in like the animal behavior or dog training space, but also in other, other areas, that it is... It's becoming a bit of a, a, the louder you are, the the truer, whatever it is you have to say, like regardless of, of evidence. And there's a whole lot of loud voices out there. And I didn't, I didn't want them to be the only voices, if that makes sense. Um, because perhaps their, their message or their philosophy or their, what they were saying is not necessarily what I would like folks. I didn't want them to only be hearing that. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, absolutely. Is that like one particular platform? Are you talking about other podcasters or? No, I was really thinking more in, in terms of Facebook and, and written, written forms initially. And so that, that prompted me to get, you know, I, I've had a blog on my website for a while, but I'm very intermittent. And so then I, I got determined and I was going to, I was going to be more consistent with blogging. 
and um, I tried really hard for a while, and I still I still um, post things on my blog periodically. But it, the writing was just a lot harder for me, and it occurred to me after a while that I listen to a lot more podcasts than I read blogs, just myself personally, and I have for years. And that it might be easier for me to get my thoughts out in an audio format rather than a written format, and and so I I, um, I gave that a try, and I you know recorded several episodes um, and just kind of held onto them in a Dropbox folder for a while before I got the nerve to actually pull the trigger and make it real. But for the most part, it, it that's that's proven to be true. I. I enjoy podcasting a lot. It's, it's a lot easier for me to make an outline and, um, and then talk about, you know, those, those points, um, just verbally rather than trying to make them into a a cohesive written format, um, and get too, too obsessive over, over the blogging aspect of it. So that was sort of, that's sort of the path that, that led me here. I think that that's probably a common trait amongst us because that's (laughs) definitely a similar thing for me. Like I've done a few blogs, but I was never really happy with them. And also, the, much like you, I really love listening to podcasts, and I love listening to interview format podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's really what got me started, wanting to kind of get into that more and and kind of have a piece of that myself. But you mentioned something there about getting frustrated with some of the people that were already kind of producing content. Is that aimed at people that maybe take more of an aversive approach or is that positive in kind of air quotes trainers as well? There were a couple of voices on some of the, the forums that I have spent time on and certainly on Facebook that were, I, you know, I probably would self-identify in more of the balanced camp or, or, um, I don't, I don't want to give other people labels, but, um, but yeah, that, that were definitely promoting and we're being very, um, dismissive of folks that were trying to pursue, um, other options, um, you know, more positive reinforcement or behavior analytic kind of, um, kind of an approach. And I think a lot of us that, that are doing that, we're, 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 we're in the trenches, you know, we're, we're so busy doing the training. We're not necessarily paying attention to what folks are talking about. And then when I, started paying more attention to that. I was like, Oh gosh, you know, if you just look at the posts on this particular forum, um, particularly in the the sports that I participate in, there's a lot of voices on kind of one end of the spectrum. And there's just not a lot of folks talking about what they're doing on the other end. So there's definitely, there are definitely people who I think there's, I think there's a lot of extreme on both sides. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of rambling at this point. I'm kind of circling. Um, <laughs> no worries. But yeah, it's- <laughs> Is, are sports in, uh, well, are, are sports, do you, because I'm not involved in sports. So this is kind of like an outsider's perspective. And also mm-hmm. we're in different countries. So that's going to add a different like element as well. Um, do you find that a balanced approach is, is quite common in it's, it's obedience that you do mostly, isn't it? Yeah. So my, my primary focus is in obedience. Though I've also, um, competed in, uh, Schutzen IPO, um, training as well. And, and I tinker in a lot of other sports, agility and fly ball. And, um, I've done a little bit of just about everything that's out there. Um, but I do mostly focus on obedience and yes, obedience is very, it's still very traditional. Um, it's got, uh, still very 
balanced and and balanced to the the aversive end of the spectrum i think um at this point at least in my in my local area um Certainly. Yeah, that's in- yeah, that's so- interesting because I know like some sports, like agility, for example, have really become very positive in the way that they train. At least that's my experience. Or they're certainly trying, and I think I think I think the I think the sports that um, where speed is a primary factor, and especially if you're if there are more kind of average dogs doing it, you're you end up drifting towards a positive reinforcement end of the spectrum because that's the, that's an easier way to get speed, right? The, you know, you can, if you have a, you know, really intense Malinois or German shepherd, you can bring a lot more aversives to the table and not sacrifice that much of the intensity. But if you're, you know, working with um, a sporting breed or a Cocker Spaniel or a, a golden doodle or something like that, you're, you, you're going to, you're going to be putting a lot more into the motivations bucket um, and less into the behavior stopping bucket. So I do think that some sports will tend to just the, essentially the, the reinforcers are built into the sport for the human of things to encourage them to look for motivational options um, more so than in other sports. And newer sports, of course, also don't have – just don't have the baggage um, that sports that have been around for decades or longer um, do in terms of, of the recipes and how things have always been done and um, – long-time handlers that have already have a reinforcement history. If you've, if you've been training dogs a particular way for 30 years and it's been working for you, you don't have a lot of motivation to look for other options. Um, and that's not the case for sports that are, that are newer. So I do think that there's some sports are, are trending more towards positive reinforcement. And I think we're all looking for better ways, um, more, more efficient, more effective, in addition to yes, potentially it's interesting that you um you you kind of mentioned German Shepherds there and and Malinois and, and other breeds like that because your podcast with Patricia McConnell on resilience really like led me down a hole. <laughs> <laughs> like I've been thinking about that a lot and we ended up having quite a big discussion on it on, on the group dedicated to the podcast mm-hmm. about resilience because one of the things that I, I might have been misinterpreting her here, so feel free to kind of like jump in. But it seems to me like resilience has a lot of... A big part of resilience is kind of grounded in genetics. So if you've bred, say, Sportsline, German Shepherd, Sportsline, Malinois, those dogs are going to be more resilient to a, a more aversive method. And I'm not saying that, hey, let's all go out there and just like put prong collars on them. All I'm saying is they can cope with it better, which might be some of the reason that um, some of those sports tend to rely on those methods so much. I think part of it depends on how we define resilience. Um, I think what a lot of those kind of high test working breeds and we're, we're speaking in terms of, of breeds as a general group, which is already a little bit, a little bit dangerous um, because of course there are individuals within those groups. There's even individuals within a litter that a purpose bred litter, but, um, but just, we'll just go with the, the generalization because it's the only way to effectively talk about it. I think um, efficiently, but <laughs> Um, I, I think what a lot of those dogs have going for them is they have their, the, the, those reinforcers like chasing things and biting things and, um, that, you know, that type of stuff, which we would, we would often, you know, categorize as drives, um, are so powerful for them that they can override. They, they also tend to arouse really easily, you know, so they, they, they chase movement really easily. Biting things feels good. So they have all of these kind of 
pre-programmed reinforcers that don't take a lot of work to cultivate, that don't take a lot of, of work to build, um, and that that do make it easy to override like stressors that are brought in. Um, so I, I, in my, my observation working with a lot of these working dogs is when that exact same dog that is a monster out on the training field, if there's a, a you know, decoy to bite, um, just bring them in the house and they're not necessarily, you don't see the same sorts of behaviors. You know, if you were, if you were to um, knock over a chair there, that dog may be a lot, um, we might say like softer uh, in the house than they are out on the training field when they're they don't have that arousal and they're the reinforcers aren't present. The the you know, the whole picture is is very different. So so I don't know. Um, I, I you know I, I, there's definitely something something different there. I mean we'd be we'd be lying if we said it, it's all the same and you know in a basset hound and a saluki is the same thing as a malinois and a German shepherd. That's, that's not that's not true at all. There are definitely some some genetic differences there. Um, <laughs> this is so funny because we're barely 10 minutes in and we're already going deep on the fear. <laughs> <laughs> because that reminds, I, I completely agree because we had this, it does depend on how you de- uh, de- define resilience, like you said, because if we're thinking about it as kind of a resilience to extinction, mm-hmm. then th- those drives to bite, those drives to th- to get the reinforcers are already within the activity that have already been so bred into their dogs to love tugging, to love doing all of this kind of stuff mm-hmm. are just going to overshadow any aversive that we put on top. Mm-hmm. Or at least a better chance to, for sure. And, and particularly, I think if the aversive, if the aversive stimulus is like in kind of the same stream as a stream of behaviors, what the dog is, is, you know, traveling to get access to the reinforcer. Like if it was totally disconnected, I think that's where it gets harder to talk about. Um, but you know, if, if like you're the, you're looking for the dog to bark longer or, or, or something, I'm trying to think of a good example on the top of my head and I'm, and I'm failing, but terribly, but, um, but, um, it, you know, f- bringing an aversive that was just helping funnel the dog into the, that stream of behavior that's going to lead to the reinforcement in the first place. Again, I, I think, they were already so powerfully pulled that direction that the aversive isn't going to have, we're not going to see the obvious fallout that we might otherwise still doesn't mean I think that we have to use it, um, or that it's even the best choice, but I do think that it can result in more of a buffer again, compared to same dog in the house. Um, here's, here's an example from my own house. I have a dog that's really intense in work. And if I drop a cookie sheet, like in the, uh, in the kitchen when I'm cooking and I'm just clumsy and I drop it and makes a big sound, she'll totally run out of the room and then just stand there and, and quiver and will come back to me when I'm, when I'm cooking. I mean, that's clearly it's not something I've trained. This was a totally, totally unrelated aversive that had nothing to do with something she was trying to get access to. And you know, just created a, an unfortunate learning experience about hanging around me when I'm trying to bake, which is probably completely valid to be honest. You, I remember you mentioning something interesting as well, which is kind of connected to this topic regarding, um, I'm tr- I forget the behavior you were trying to train, but this kind of realization that um, when you're getting frustrated barking, that's almost always because the behavior is going into extinction. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know the story I'm talking about? No, but I believe you. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it, it's it's something I've had a lot of experience with um, dogs vocalizing out of frustration, and in foreseeing frustration, that means that the path to accessing reinforcement is not clear, and that is effectively extinction. So some, you know, the dog is experiencing extinction and that's, 
that's a training problem. You know, that means I need, my job is how can I clarify what, what this dog needs to do to get access to that reinforcement. Again, I work, work with a lot of Belgians and German shepherds. So frustration vocalization is something that I have a lot of experience with um, on both sides. So this is jumping back now because I'm wary that we're going like really deep, really quick. <laughs> what, um, what, what podcasts do you listen to that really inspired you then to start your own? I listen to a lot and, and it varies. Um, I honestly don't remember what was kind of on the top of my list um, when I first when I first started with this. Um, but I've listened to. I mean, I listen to podcasts every day. Um, I listen to you know a lot of the ones from Gimlet and Media and NPR and those sorts of fancy podcasts. And um, honestly, I'm trying to I'm trying to remember. Um, I, really, I noticed that yeah, you fo- follow the Art of Charm. I did. Yeah. For a while I was listening to that one. Um, I don't even, I don't have no idea. It's very, it's very, um, it's very twisted how I end up, you know, you'll hear a reference to somebody from some podcast. And so you go look them up and you listen to that one for a little while and they'll reference something else. And, um, I have everything from like cooking podcasts to, uh, certainly anything to do. I love hidden brain, anything to do with behavior and learning. Um, and so any references that come up, I'll tend to chase those down, uh, and listen to those, as well. I don't I don't know what you think about this, but I kind of feel like podcasting in general, but also certainly within our own niche, is really in its infancy. Like I feel like more people are gonna cotton on to podcasts oh, yeah. over the next few years. I well I certainly hope that they do. I mean that's good for us. Um but there, there's definitely a lot of people I still will talk to that don't know what a podcast is. Um so I do think it's I think it's very new. Um, but then there's also people who don't know what a blog is and that's not as new. I feel like podcast it kind of originated as kind of like quite a geeky term, didn't it? And people probably hear the word podcast and kind of instantly feel a little bit intimidated by it, which is why a lot, a lot of the time you see people naming their podcasts, other things like the show. Or, do you know what I mean? Like, it's yes. kind of like, yes. they're trying to get away from that term. <laughs> yes. Such and such radio or, or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it is. I think there's, there's, um, there's something there in that it is, or has been a little bit nerdy. So you have to be a little bit of an early adopter. Um, and I think, I think there's also that element of like public access, um, cable or radio where you know anybody can make their show and so a lot of the shows out there are weird which is fine i mean i kind of <laughs> i love that about podcasts so that's that's a, to me that's an appeal but i think to 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 more mainstream people who aren't such early adopters that can that it can be intimidating can be a little like well what do you talk about like oh i talk about well okay so it, so it doesn't sound particularly good <laughs> if i tell what i talk about to people who aren't in animal behavior but um, you know, yeah, well, people that are listening to this are the early adopters, right? Essentially. Right on. And, and probably at least a little bit training nerds. So we got that going. So how did you end up getting into dog training? Because I think that so many of the people that, uh, certainly I'm in a bit of a bubble. I'm in kind of like a pet dog training bubble because that's what I do, but you kind of come uh, from a different approach being involved in the sports world, which again, almost seems like a double up with the early adopter because it seems like there's only a few of you that are really doing that full time in a sense. Yeah. So I started in pet dogs. Um, 
originally, in fact, well, actually, I initially started because I had a pet dog that was biting people, um, including me, which I think is a, a common story for a lot of us that end up in, in dog training. And so through the, the process of trying to get help with, with him, um, I got hooked on this idea of dog training. And once we got through the, the worst of the um, you know, aggressive and reactive behaviors. And then, well, now what do I train? Oh, well, let's train tricks and let's teach him to retrieve a beer from the fridge. And, um, around that same time I was in graduate school and I was discovering that I did not like graduate school. And so the, the worse my experience, um, with the, the grad school thing got, the more time I was spending volunteering at the shelter and volunteering to teach, um, assist with uh, classes at the, the training facility that I was taking classes in. And, um, after a while I, I realized that I was spending more time teaching dog training and working with dogs and people working with people to work with dogs than I was doing, uh, the lab stuff and maybe there was something there. Um, so I decided to take a terminal masters. Um, and so I left, um, I left graduate school and started the process of, of beginning to train full time. And initially it was working entirely with, with pet dogs. And at the same time I had acquired another dog and I was getting involved in sports kind of almost by accident again, just and now what can I train? And now what can I train? And I was teaching full-time um, group classes. I had day training clients. I had some board and train clients. And um, Oh, so you've kind of already gone professional now. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. And then, um, yeah, and, and it was, it, and then my, my clients hit the same kind of thing. Like they went through all of my pet managers classes and like my advanced managers classes. And then they're like, we still love training. What can we train next? And so I'm like, well... Um, we can train for rally. Let's try rally obedience. And I was doing rally. So I, you know, taught them some of the skills and they went out and trained, you know, trained for rally obedience and started earning some ribbons there. And that was really reinforcing. They're like, we want to try obedience too. And so, okay, let's put together an obedience class. It was, I was just developing classes to keep up with what they, what they wanted. Um, it was entirely by accident. At no point did I set out thinking that I would, I would end up instructing people in competitive dog sports. So when you made that leap from kind of being in school to, to becoming a professional dog trainer, was it, was the Karen Pryor Academy in between there or did that come later? Um, I had already been teaching professionally for five or six years, I think, um, before KPA was a thing. Um, and then, uh, the, the, I was teaching, I was running a, a training and behavior program for a, um, a group of uh, vet clinics locally and uh, there was some change in management and um, it just became clear that it was time, it was time for me to, to move on, you know, time to go on to the next thing. And um, around that same time, I saw an ad for uh, for KPA and the, the timing just seemed seemed right. I was ready to level up. I was ready to see you know, to take, to take my skills, to take my skills to the next level. And, um, I had, was really wanted to improve my teaching ability in particular. Um, and so I, um, I applied to KPA and, um, attended that program. I mean, it was awesome. And it really helped me pull together a lot of the, a lot of those kind of like floating bits of, of knowledge and ideas that I had, that I had had and kind of slot them together into more of a complete picture. 
so once you finished that, uh, um, studying at the Karen Pro Academy, how did you end up becoming so involved with Clicker Expo? And also you instruct for them, don't you? I do. Yeah. So I've, I finished as a student with KPA, um, at the time, at the time that I was, um, in, uh, in the program as a student, I had opened my own business and was, and was basically doing the same thing that I had been doing for the vet clinics, but now just doing it, um, on my own. And, uh, when I completed it, my instructor, Laurie Luck, um, thought that I would be a good fit to instruct. And so she recommended that I, um, that I apply to instruct there. Um, I also, I'm trying to remember exactly how the timeline played out around then, but, uh, I was invited to, to speak at, uh, the APDT conference around that same time. So, um, and then I was also having met folks and, and gotten a chance to train with folks from, you know, kind of a wider area through, through, through KBA, actually from some, between my class, uh, people who were in my class, my classmates, and then, you know, folks that they knew, um, I was getting invited to teach seminars like at a wider and wider radius, which was kind of weird and surreal. And then, um, APDT invited me to speak, which was also kind of weird and surreal. And then, um, and then KPA hired me to instruct for them. Ooh, we don't know. Why it's so loud here? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Fine. Um, anyways, so real dog, real dogs in real life. Um, yeah, exactly. It's fine. But um, yeah, so so then the um, train of thought, train of thought, come back. Um, so yeah, so um, so yeah, and that's that's kind of you know the as I as I traveled to. Um, to present seminars, I would then meet more people. And so just kind of the, the network expanded from there. So how did the opportunities to talk originally come about? How did people kind of know about you? Really just from seeing me train my own dogs. And then um, they would ask me for lessons. Um, they, you know, they would see me with my own dogs at a, at a trial or even just I had somebody approach me while I was literally on the sidewalk working with uh, one of my young Belgians. And she pulled her car over and was like, how, you know, is that a Belgian? How are you training that? Do you want to come train? <laughs> it was so funny and we're still friends, but, um, I, people would see me working my dogs and they would want to know how I accomplished what I was doing. How'd you do that? Do you do private lessons? Well, yes, I do. And here's my card. And, um, and they would do a lesson. It would turn out, you know, I have, um, a friend that I think would really enjoy, um, hearing what you have to say. And so they would hook me with that friend and turns out the friend owns a training facility. Um, and then they would invite me in to give a seminar, um, and it just cascaded. So at this point, you were already having quite a lot of success in obedience competition then. Yeah. So, um, the dogs I was competing with were scoring well locally. We'd been to a few tournaments and done, done pretty well. Um, we had a few national rankings, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that was pretty successful. <laughs> okay, awesome. So that that was a big moment then, first talking at the APDT conference. Yes, that was terrifying. And um, then you got the phone call from Karen Pariah. Yes, that was <laughs> literally terrifying. I was actually driving my car um, with, uh, and, I, and I got pregnant and had a baby in the middle of all of that too. So it was like extra complicated. In the middle of the call. Well, not in the call. That was, <laughs> it wasn't that long of a call, but, um, but between, between, 
the various APDTs and, and, um, and the KPA and all, and all of that. And, um, yeah, I was, and so I was, I was just kind of sleep deprived and, and was, and was driving in my car and my phone rang and it was a Boston number on caller ID and I answered it and holy crap, it's Karen Pryor. And I had to pull over into a, into a shopping center parking lot. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, I imagine that was extremely nerve wracking. It was, and she still hired me. So I don't know. I must've not sounded too, <laughs> too crazy. So what did she say? She just said, Hey, we want you as an instructor. Honestly, I kind of, the whole thing is just like a, a blur. Um, I, I don't think I took a breath, um, the entire time, but yeah, they, you know, they'd reviewed, they'd reviewed my application and she'd, um, had a chance to see me speak. She was at APDT that year, um, and sat in on, uh, one of my presentations and, and, uh, it all came down to, she thought I did a pretty good job, which was like basically the best compliment in the world. Um, when you were giving that conference talk, did you know that she was in the audience? Was it like a deliberate thing? Like, okay, I've got to impress Karen I, so I can get I this did, job. I did know she was in the audience because she had spoken to me outside the door. And oh that, my God. Yeah. <laughs> that that yeah. can't help. No, no. So I was trying so hard. It was, you know, they bring the lights down and they've got the light. So it's easy to not, so I was trying really hard not to notice the audience. Um, and then what I didn't know with that particular presentation, which makes it that much worse, is that not only was Karen Pryor in the audience, but so was Bob Bailey. And oh, it, wow. And in fact, it was really, it got quite, it really got kind of ridiculous after the fact. But in that particular presentation, I was talking about teaching handler mechanics to uh, pet training students. So as, as an instructor, what are some of the things that we can do to improve um, the mechanical skills of our um, of our pet owners that are attending our classes of students. And so I was talking about that. And I had several quotes from Bob Bailey because, of course, he talks about mechanics so much. And a lot of what I have learned about the importance of mechanics and, and how to you know, accomplish things, I got from Bob Bailey. So I had several quotes. And then at the end of the presentation, there was a Q&A session uh, in a separate room. And so they take you out of the room with all of the, the lighting and they put you in this separate room. And then it's a smaller group of folks and they'll, they'll ask questions. There's this guy standing in the back of the room and he started asking me a couple of questions and I couldn't really see him. But as he walked up to ask the question, I thought to myself, gosh, that guy looks kind of like Bob Bailey. That's so weird. <laughs> and I'm kind of like chuckling to myself. And he, and then after the Q&A, he came up just to, to shake my hand and, and tell me he thought I did a nice job. It was a good presentation. And I looked down at his name badge and I just like fainted on the floor dead uh, because it was Bob Bailey. And he saw me quote him several times and I talked about all this stuff and I had no idea the entire time. One of the fun things I think about your podcast, which people will get from that story, which was brilliant, <laughs> was you're not shy about like fangirling over like people like Bob Bailey and Karen Pryor, which is really true to, I think it's really authentic because I know from talking to a lot of other dog trainers that those, those big names, right? Like Ken Ramirez, Karen Pryor, Bob Bailey, like all of those really big names for us. And it's going to sound weird to people that aren't dog trainers, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but it's like meeting like the most famous celebrity, you know, oh, yeah. it's the same uh, amount of, nerves bob bailey is like i don't know i was gonna say the kanye west <laughs> kind which is of? a terrible example yeah, you know in some ways but but yeah no it's um, it's, it's definitely um, bob bailey is much nicer than kanye west he is 
<laughs> but yeah, it's um, it's definitely my husband doesn't understand at all. He's like, "Why are you so nervous?" Like, "Oh, because it's Ken. It's Ken Ramirez." <laughs> He's like, "Okay, whatever." Yeah, um, so I love that authenticity because um, it would be easy to be like, "Oh, I've got a podcast, so now I'm going to try and act." Like, very professional, I'm going to stay cool, I'm going to act as if I'm one of that crowd. But if only, no, you're very- if only it were easy to do that, actually. Um, but no. <laughs> <laughs> because it is, it is nerve-wracking when you have, like, I know you've had some really well-known people, like we mentioned Patricia McConnell, Ken Ramirez, you've had some really big names on the podcast, and it is nerve-wracking. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, um... The one with uh, Patricia McConnell, I was particularly terrified that I was going to completely screw that one up. Um, I think it came out. My okay. biggest fear is it not recording. Not recording terrifies me, <laughs> or just generally, because I, mean, I, you try not to make a scene, right? You try not to just get completely overwhelmed and and um, be a, a complete idiot, and you don't really know. At least for me, I just the, the the blood rushing in my ears gets so loud, and I don't actually, I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. It's so I, I'm I'm always I'm always I never know. So it's always always a little nerve wracking. <laughs> I have a funny story actually. When I first met Patricia McConnell, which was, it was kind of like, I was probably hardly doing any one to ones at this point, and and she was in Bristol doing a um, seminar, and I went to see her. I watched all through her talk, and then she kind of like hung around to speak to people and like take photos and sign books and all that kind of stuff. And I remember walking up to her, and I was lit. I I can't describe this in audio format how much I was shaking like it was so embarrassing and and yeah. she just kind of like laughed and like um put her arm around my shoulder and took a photo and she just I, she said something about like how cute it was but it was just I was so nervous and I was still quite young at that time I was probably like only I was probably about 16 wow so. yeah yeah, she's yeah. amazing. She is is just really amazing. I mean, I'm going to be more like her when I grow up. That's uh, at least that's my hope. She's someone to aspire to for sure. One mm-hmm. of the coolest things about watching her speak was how much, how many references she has. Like, it's clear when she speaks that firstly she knows everyone, and secondly <laughs> she's read every book that exists. She has read every <laughs> book and can quote it and yes. cite it. Yes, yes, for sure. I'm sure if you asked her, she could give you like the page number, the the sentence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When when we were, when I was preparing for that one, and she's like, "And you're familiar with?" And here's a name, and I'm like, "Of course I am." Fast googling. <laughs> oh yes, I see. Um, of course, I've I'm I've read that just now. Yeah. Yeah, Patricia McConnell is very cool, and actually, um, after hearing her on your podcast, which was. Probably one of my favorite podcasts ever. Actually, the only thing I will say um, might have topped it. No, no offense to Patricia. Is is the podcast with Ken where he talked the second podcast where he talks about um, teaching search and rescue yes. with the modifier cues. Yes. With oh the, my god, the my dog, mind was yeah, blown. Yeah, the collapsed building was ridiculous. Yeah, I had to That's- mute myself for part of that because I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, props to you because you got one of the best stories, I think. One of the best dog training stories I've ever heard. Like that was that took <laughs> me back to when I got into dog training and I was like reading Don't Shoot the Dog and it was just blowing my mind every single page. I know, right? Oh, 
Yeah. That was a great story. And and one of the other things I wanted to ask you about, actually, because tell me if I've kind of got you right on, on where you're trying to head in terms of training. Um, when you were talking on Ryan's podcast about how you want to further sports training and, and it kind of sounded like you want to put together almost a team of people that are going to approach um, sports training in a more progressive way and kind of show people, look, like this, this isn't a load of hippie shit. Like this actually is really <laughs> effective. And look, we can come here and we can um, do really well. Yeah. And really, honestly, I hope we can go. I hope we can go even further downstream than that, but I do think that dog sports in general and probably obedience tends to kind of be held as a sort of a gold standard for, well, this is, this is, this is how champion obedience dogs are trained. So we should all train dogs like that, which is not necessarily true because dog sports are not, have, there is of course behavior is behavior and good training is good training, but, but, you know, comparing real life to obedience competitions is not, that's not, that's not. It's apples and oranges. This is not the same thing. Um, but people still do, they still do hold it up there, right? You know, they, uh, and, and other professional trainers will advertise various titles that their dogs have won. And I assume it carries some weight, even in the pet, the pet world who don't know. Um, but I do think that we have a chance to change the culture, um, a little bit, you know, and, and bring, I think bring a lot of, there are a lot of us who are doing good training. Um, we tend to be kind of isolated. I think dog training in general tends to, regardless of method, tends to result in some, a certain amount of isolation, even, even within like a larger community. So I think, I think bringing a lot of us together, sharing what's working well, um, how this all fits into the larger model, we can, we can make training better. Like we can actually, we can progress the, the, the industry as a whole, um, certainly sports is our, the sports are a good medium for that. Cause we can, we can tinker with stuff and we can try it out and then we can, you know, take it in the ring and how does this hold up and then come back out and make changes. We get, we can get a feedback cycle going where we have some standard measures of, you know, what a, what a performance, you know, what success looks like. Um, and I, I just, I would really love to see us all, you know, working together and sharing sharing information and sharing what, what we're learning as we're going so that we're all benefit from it and benefiting from it. Um, and learning to do positive reinforcement better, um, learning to do training better in general, um, just learning, you know, being more efficient and, um, one of the things that, <laughs> more effective, um... yeah, <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I've noticed is sometimes it feels like the bar is getting higher and higher. Like at a time it was, well, I hesitant to say this because I've even seen people say it recently, but it's like, you know, well, you can't do this, you know, well, you can't do. And then once people do do that clearly with positive training, which I, I hate that term, but kind of yeah, more progressive training. And then, you know, and then the bar gets set at high. Well, you couldn't do this. And then that bar gets met. And, and it kind of feels, yeah. it feels like sometimes like the sports world and the working world are kind of like the last frontiers at this point. And there are people like you and, you know, we've had some um, guests on recently that are making like real dents in that now. And I, I, when I was talking to Robert Hewings recently, 
who's an ex-police dog trainer in London, he was saying that now police dog training is very positive in, in this country. Mm-hmm. So, like, I feel like we are, like, getting there. Um, but it, it does sometimes feel like you just, you, you meet one criteria and then it, there's another oh, thing that, me, oh, you can... Yeah, it makes me crazy. Like, you know, I'll have, I'll have, you know, I'll post some video of, like, oh, hey, I tried this thing and look at the success that I had, you know, working on this particular behavior problem. And they'll say, <laughs> oh, we'll try doing it with a terrier. Okay, fine. I'll go out and get a terrier. <laughs> now I'm a terrier. Look at me being, you know, I've, I've solved this problem. And I've learned a ton from each dog, right? Um, because I don't know everything. I have no idea about a lot of stuff. In fact, the longer I do this, the less that I know and the less sure I feel about the stuff that I think I know. Um, so, okay, so I get a terrier and then I, I'll show a video of him. Oh, well, that's not a real terrier. You have to do it with a bull terrier before I'll listen. Like, well, good grief, people. Um, and if it's not that, well, you can only do it with terriers. Try doing it with a high drive dog. All right, I'll go get a crazy sport bred border collie. They don't get any higher drive than that. He'll kill himself over a frisbee. Well, try doing it with a low drive dog. You have to go get a sight hound. All right, I'll get a sight hound. Fine, but I can only have one one dog every couple of years, and also stay married. So I have to I have to wait a little bit on the sight hound. But it is yeah. That's <laughs> you put that way more eloquently than me. But. Um... I, re- I remember Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about this, and he said, he talks to people and he says, what evidence would it take to convince you? And then if he shows them that evidence and they still come up with some other way of getting around it, at that point he just, he leaves them to it. And I right. think that's that's very much true of, of what we're saying here. I mean, I remember once, because I've had that so many times, and I think that one of these things that people keep going back to is, well, you couldn't do that with a dog that chases x and x right <laughs> right and we, right. we put Not up a video of a dog. dog yes yeah we put up a video of a dog doing it and you know that doesn't cut the mustard so then i came across this video um i think the zoo is in sweden where they did a recall with lions mm-hmm. and it's like okay can we accept that lions are more difficult to train than your little terrier. <laughs> because you'd, you'd think so, right? Like they're really big. You would big. think so, right? They eat people. They're cats. I mean, already you get extra points for the cat part. So yeah. anyway, that wasn't enough, um, <laughs> uh, as you would imagine. So then we ended up having Peter Gilgamon, who is the guy that trained the lions, um, and we went for it all. But it's never going to be enough. No, it it is. You know, you can lead a horse to water and it's, it, I'm not trying to convince people, but I want to be available when people are ready to listen. Um, that's sort of where I've decided what my role is. I you know, we'll have the information here and I'm, you know, I know that there are problems that we don't have good solutions for. I also know that there's problems that nobody has good solutions for because the world is a complex place and behavior is complicated because there's just so many variables in play all of the time. So as we're just kind of quietly going along, finding solutions we'll have them available and we'll have the resources, you know, at least I hope they, that's, you know, that's part of my goal. We can, we can, we can create this, this pool of resources of, Hey, here's what's working. Here's how it fits the model. Here's how you can apply it. And as we collect more of these resources, when people are ready, it's here, you know, they can open the door themselves, but I don't, I think you're right. We're not going to convince, we're not going to convince anybody who's not ready to be convinced again if anything the internet particularly facebook has taught me in the last two years it's that that you have to be ready to listen in order to hear it yeah i mean i've certainly got in trouble recently for um trying trying to be a little bit more open in how we address people that don't agree with 
the kind of training that me and you do. Um, because I think that sometimes like the, one of the things that frustrates me most about dog training is this, like this gang versus this gang kind of mentality. And like, you know, you're not allowed to talk to people on the other side. You know, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. Like, for example, I would be very open to having balanced trainers on the podcast and having an actual conversation with them. And we don't have to agree with everything. But I know that there are people that that would make their head explode. Oh, my God, you had a balanced trainer on the podcast? Like, you are a traitor? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, no, we do need to extend. Like, we, like you said there, like, we need to be willing to have some kind of discussion or we're not going to progress. It is. And there are a lot of things that, that I, I have learned so much from people who just, who do good training, it, take philosophy out of it, but just, they're doing good training. They're getting results. So, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. What are they doing? That's working. Why is it working? What can I understand about that? And so I do have friends who, who are on the other side of the, the wall, so to speak. Um, and I don't really think of it that way in general, but I think it could be viewed that way. And, um, and okay, so I've been seeing training with someone who uses an electric collar. Well, I'm not using the electric collar and I don't accept the premise that it's necessary or, or, or helpful. But I also know that this particular friend is, is successfully, you know, creating behaviors that I would like to have. So what are you doing? Um, you know, with, with, with your methods, how is that, you know, how are, how does this fit the model? You know, what are the variables that are in play here? And then how can I translate that into something that fits with how I approach training? You know, what can I take from that? Um, how can I adjust the various knobs and switches to get the same or better outcome without having to use the same equipment? Um, but the only way that I can learn that is to keep those doors open. Yeah, the two things come to mind as you say that. Firstly, is a lot of people make the assumption that because someone uses aversives, they can't be skilled at the same time. Like, those two things are mutually exclusive. Like, you can use aversives and also be a very good trainer. And I, I that's controversial to say, which seems silly, but there are people that use um, aversives that have incredible skills. Um and secondly, I've certainly hung around with people that are positive trainers that a lot of people would look up to. And like, they've been showing me that like, I know for a fact that they watch these trainers that use aversives and do exactly what you said. You know, they take the, they take what, what they can out of it and then make, make it more in line with their philosophy. You know, there are a lot of training right. techniques that people use now that they don't realize originated in a more aversive method. And actually, we've just found a way of doing it, which suits us better. Right. Exactly. You know, is, is there. Um, OK, so I see this dog. I love the healing style. It's there, it's very animated. There's a lot of upwards energy. I want my dog to have that same kind of weight shift. What am I seeing that I'm reacting to here that I could replicate? OK, I see this. How could I do it without the leash? The leash is what's creating that weight shift. So what could I do with my training? How about a hand target? If I presented a hand target above head, do I get the same weight shift? Yes, I do. Great. Now I have a way to induce the same behavior using a, you know, the carrot and not using the stick. But I wouldn't have figured that out if I hadn't watched the really good performance to begin with. I wouldn't have even had a picture in my head of what I was trying to train for. Obedience is a little bit like daunting from someone that's not already involved in it because it seems like such a precision game right like everything matters like for example if you're not involved in obedience sometimes 
you stand by the side of the ring or you watch it on TV or whatever. And like, you don't under, like, it's hard to understand why one dog beats another dog. Cause it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. And, and there's, and I know it, particularly in, in, it, it varies by organization and by country, but there can be a fair, as much as we talk about points, it can be fairly subjective. Um, so there's definitely style, a style element, which I think is completely opaque. Um, if you're coming from outside the sport, you know, why, why a judge would be, would prefer this performance over the other when they both look like magic to begin with. So my question is, it was like, when you watch other competitors or when you're trying to learn from anything, how deeply are you dissecting it? Oh, well, you know me, I'm, I'm going to dissect it very, very deeply. Um, (laughs) if it, if at all possible, I love, I love to use the um, the speed adjustment feature on YouTube. So if I'm I'm watching videos in the evenings of, of other performances that I really admire, um, I'll slow it down. I'll watch it in slow motion and try to figure out. You know, usually I'll start with a performance that just aesthetically pleases me. That I just I like the look of it. So it's sort of like like art, right? And you're like, I like the way this looks. What do I like about this? And I'll study that and be like, you know, I, I love the dog's expression. I love he's using his body this particular in this particular way um and then i'll look back and um i'll slow it down you know what is the handler doing that's cueing those things and i love watching in slow motion like comparing a dog that's doing a really sharp um like really fast drop like they're going from a stand to a down or um we have a drop on recall i think you guys have a similar a similar behavior over there and different countries have kind of different different versions but um the new dog is running at speed and all of a sudden the handler gives a cue for the dog to lie down and the really sharp performances the dog looks like he's just like hit a wall he's like bam and he slams into the ground it's like really fast and sharp and fancy looking so what are the mechanics you know what's different between the dog that drops so instantly that again it just it looks magic compared to a dog that gets into the down but takes three or four steps to do so and it doesn't look doesn't have that magical quality to it um I can slow that down on video and I can watch how the, the really sharp dog is using his body. Okay. So he's planting his hind feet. He's really extending through the shoulder. His front feet stay together. Um, and his back stays parallel to the ground and he really pushes backwards into the earth. So his whole, his whole body moves backwards against that forward momentum. And then the dog that's a little bit less sharp is continuing to run as he's going into a down, his front feet are moving separately. He often the hind feet come up in the air and the back doesn't stay parallel. Either can be tilted up or down. And so if I compare those two things, uh, those two dogs, those two performances, those two kind of topographies of behavior, and then I look at my dog. What does my dog do when he lays down? Oh, darn. He looks like the second one. Okay. How could I back this up and get that initial motion of that that weight shift, that planting of those hind feet and, and that shoulder extension? How could I shape for that um, and build that behavior? Yeah, I want to hear more now. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's one of the things I noticed from watching sports. It seems like sometimes the dogs that are trained with aversives, like what we would call like the latency, right? Like the speed of response can sometimes be much higher than than what we see. But maybe that's just me seeing the wrong materials. I don't know. I mean, I think it can be reinforcement drives behavior. 
But certainly negative reinforcement can drive behavior just as effectively as positive reinforcement. So some of that is in the application, if we're going to be completely honest. I do, however, think that there is a little bit more room for error. There's a little more buffer if you're, if you're kind of driving the positive reinforcement bus there. Um, if your timing's a little bit off, you're not going to lose those more fragile emotional behaviors. I think of them as like accessory behaviors. Like you're gonna, you're less likely to get, get hit with like longer latency compared to a dog that's, that's being careful because they're not sure. So on the other hand, again, good training is good training. So with, with good, with a good understanding of what you're trying to train for, which I think is what, that's one of the main things that traditional trainers have, um, over a lot of kind of newer trainers where if we're, if we are newer to the training scene, we haven't, you know, apprenticed with someone who's been training for decades. We haven't had success. We don't know what the ideal performance looks like. We're training in the dark. Um, so that's really the first thing we need to know. Like, what do I want this to look like? And that's, that was when I first got started in sports. I had no idea. I was, I thought healing was just the dog walked at your left side and that's healing. But it turns out healing is so much more than that. And there's all of these pieces you can break it out into. Um, so, so, so some of it is having either, either having from experience or from doing research, a really clear picture of what you want the outcome to look like so that you can then set criteria and create a plan, training plan to get there. Um, that's what I didn't have with my first couple of dogs. And then as, as I realized that, oh gosh, you know, I'm getting a lot of second places. Second place is nice, but I'd really like to get a first place. What is that first place dog doing that I'm not doing? Uh, and, and how can, how can I, you know, figure that out and take that apart? Um, and then, because I think, yeah, I think that a, a stop is like universe, like one of those stops that you're talking about where the dog just like you know, stops instantly. Like I've seen videos of dogs like sliding across like wet grass. Cause exactly. they just like, yeah, that is super impressive. And I think it's kind of universally impressive. Like I see people sharing that that aren't dog trainers. Yes. Like, they just think it looks really cool to the public. It looks like magic and which is awesome. Right. Cause then they're motivated to train their own dogs. But I do think that, that, that stop and drop, whether it's, uh, in, a, in an obedience context, it's certainly, um, very useful in a herding context. A lot of you know, that, that, fast drop is really helpful there. And it's, and it's also helpful, you know, we use a, an emergency down in, again, in a, in a lifestyle, you know, pet dog context, if I need to drop my dog suddenly because there's a car coming or, or, you know, I just need to be able to stop my dog really quickly, but it does look that there's, there's that almost invisibility of the cue, like that idea that I can control this animal outside of myself with such a small signal and get such an instantaneous response. There's, there's a magical quality there that is just always going to be very impressive, no matter what the behavior is uh, on that other side. Yeah. I remember I uh, went to one of Jane Arden's workshops recently. Jane's a gun dog trainer. And we did a podcast a few episodes ago and she was talking about how, um, one of the things that she learned, um, was that with the the stop, um, the the length of your cue makes so much difference. So, for example, if you have a um, if you she uses a whistle. So, what some people would do with their stop whistle is they would have like a elongated tone. But what happens is the dog doesn't know if you're going to uh, if that's if that whistle is going to turn into like a recall or or what. So they end up 
like waiting for the signal, the end of the queue, basically. Um, whereas if you have just like a, a one like really short pip, then the dog immediately knows that the, that queue is for the stop. Does that make sense? Yeah, I no, that, like makes some, that it makes complete <laughs> sense. There's um, I think of you know we have like a hand signal queue, and I and I have found that it's it's tempting to leave your hand up in the air if you're wanting you know, to signal the dog to lie down or to sit, and the 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 longer you're leaving your hand up there, it, it often translates into a less effective cue versus that the change of state of your arm going from a neutral position to making a motion to returning to neutral position is more effectively the cue. Um, and I can definitely see a, a sound functioning very much the same way. Uh, long, you know, Did you have any of those kind of similar realizations as you were trying to improve the speed of your stop and drop? Um, I, <sighs> I was there ever like, oh wow, I'm, I'm really screwing that up? Well, like, and- it, well, there's the in the in the in the competition ring, the, the scoring provides some feedback, and I and I did discover that I got scored more poorly when I when I held my signal because that is a, that's a scorable offense um, in obedience. But I so I didn't notice it so much in terms of the outcome of the of the behavior. Um, but having discovered I was losing points in that particular area, I was motivated to shorten my cue. Um, so there's kind of the, the other side, kind of the other side there from a motivation standpoint. But I, you know, I have noticed that for example, on, on our signals exercise where the dog, you have to leave the dog on a stay, you do a healing pattern, you leave the dog in a stand, you have to walk 50 feet away. And then on the judge's signal, you give a series of hand signals for the dog to, to change position on the spot. And it's, really irritatingly difficult exercise, even though it seems like it should be very straightforward. Um, it's just so easy to lose the dog to the environment. I think when you're, when, as you, you're moving that far away from them and you have only hand signals to work with. And, um, I have noticed that when I turn to face my dog in that context, if my dog is going to, is going to respond really at all, he does it the second I flip my hand over to start to raise it. Like he sees the motion right away. So effectively the actual cue is that, that instant, that, that, that again, that, that change of state from neutral to I'm starting to make the motion. That's going to be the hand signal. Um, if I get to the top of that hand signal and he hasn't laid down yet, he's not going to lay down. So, you know, I can keep stretching my arm up and up and up and up and up until like my shoulder dislocates, but he's not laying down. Um, and the, the same thing for the sit, you know, he's going to sit as soon as he sees that hand flip over. Um, so it, the, if I have the dog, the, that, that change of state from the neutral to the beginning of the signal is functioning as the cue and extending the cue just doesn't buy me anything. Um, if I keep going and you'll, and I've done it. I mean, I've laughed at other people, but I've also laughed at myself because I've totally like stood on my tiptoes while I kept raising my hand, hoping that he would notice. And he just continues to stand and stare at me and wag his tail. Like he doesn't recognize me. Which I think that's one of the cool things about competition is it forces you to get better at your practical skills. It does isolate a lot of things. You know, if you can't, um, and again, so obedience is particularly good at this because you are so limited in the cues that you can give. Um, and, and you get feedback on, on how, how clean your cues are. If you're, if your cue is, is messy and like you, you're moving your upper body while you're moving your hand or you're, you're, you have extraneous motion while you're giving a verbal cue, you'll get scored. So you're motivated to pay attention to what your body is doing. And, um, and you will find out if, you know, again, down is a common one. Everybody teaches down. So many of us teach down with some amount of upper body movement because dogs tend to be shorter than us. 
and the cue for down so often becomes down plus this like head and shoulder dip towards the ground. And we don't notice because we train by ourselves and we don't really pay attention. And then if you're in a situation where you're giving the cue down and either you're in the ring, so your, your whole body has turned to stone and you can't move your shoulders because you haven't taken a breath in three minutes or you're just, uh, you're carrying groceries or something. And you, you know, for whatever reason, that upper body movement is gone. You have the verbal isolated by itself. The behavior disappears. Well, the cue's gone. Um, you're no longer giving the same cue. You lose the behavior. And that's not something I would have necessarily, I would necessarily be as aware of if I weren't training for, with competition in mind, knowing that gosh, you really got to be able to isolate that verbal cue. It's got to be just the verbal cue. It can't be any of these extra prompts or extra stuff. Uh, I think we'd run across it anyways, but it, it certainly shows up faster if you were planning to take it into competition. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that people can even try with their own dogs. Like, you know, put your hands in your pockets and ask your dog to do the things that they know, right? right? Like right. if you just change the picture a little bit, mm-hmm. then you'd be surprised at how the dog's reaction changes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what is your mission with all of this? Like, where are you hoping to go with with what you're doing? With the podcast or dog training or... All of it. All of it? Um, well, I mean, just I just want to change the world is all. Um, <laughs> nothing big. But I would say, you know, I, I hope that we can learn to communicate with others that are that are different than us, whether because they're furry or just because they live in a different part of the world. I hope that we can learn to communicate more effectively and have a little more empathy for others experiences outside of our own, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. It's yeah, cheesy. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's real cheesy, that's... but yeah. No, no. And that's really <laughs> valuable. Like, um, do you have a goal in terms of, are you, for example, do you want to set up your own sports dog academy nope. or do you want to offer loads of online courses or nope. do you like, where, where do you see that? Where do you see this going? From a business standpoint? I don't know. Ask me in five years. Um, <laughs> I'll let you know, but. Okay. So you, <laughs> we're not going to have like Hannah's ranch. No, gosh, no. Holy cow. No, <laughs> no, that's definitely not my, that's not my strength. I'm, um, maybe there's a way to, to, uh, you know, build a, a, a viable business out of just like really geeking out about dog training. Um, but if I figured that one out, if you figured it out, let me know. Well, I hope so because <laughs> yeah, me and you are definitely at the forefront of that with the podcasting stuff. <laughs> Where can people find out more about you and check out your podcast as well? Sure. So my podcast is called drinking from the toilet and it is available everywhere. Podcasts are sold. So iTunes, um, Google podcasts, Stitcher, and uh, you can listen on your Alexa or smart speaker. Um, as far as I know, all the places that I'm aware of, um, my website is wonderpupstraining.com, and you can read more about me there. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Um, if you just go look under my name, Hannah Brannigan, you can usually find me. It should be pretty easy. Awesome. All right. Great talking to you. Great. It was nice talking to you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want to check out Hannah's links and you don't want to trawl the internet looking for them, then you can find all of that stuff over at nickbenger.com slash Hannah hyphen Brannigan. 
And don't forget to join us over on the Facebook discussion group. That's where I post the podcast first so you can get notified that they're out. And, and also, that's where we discuss everything that went on in the podcast and everything that's going to go on in the podcast. So to find that, just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group on Facebook and uh, put in a request to join. The other thing is that this podcast was sponsored by Butternut Box. Butternut Box are a really healthy, natural dog food that's made from the freshest ingredients. The company really want to revolutionize the dog food company, uh, the dog food industry, because the industry is just full of crap dog foods. And this is one of the few dog foods that has a five-star rating on All About Dog Food. It's a brilliant, brilliant dog food. It's great for dogs that are fussy eaters or have sensitive stomachs. And as a podcast listener, you can get 75% off your first order by going to butternutbox.com slash nickbenger. So definitely check those out. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave an iTunes review for the podcast and subscribe if you aren't already. Right. See you guys.